It was several months ago that I brought Savannah, my middle daughter, to the doctor. Uh, it's a regular annual checkup, something they do to kids these days. Uh, and they, you know, checked her health and uh, I think they even did blood and asked her all kinds of questions about her diet and everything. And at the end of which, the doctor sits me down and says, you know, you need to work on, she needs more calcium in her diet and you got to make sure you're feeding her. She gave me a list of like three things she wanted me to make sure Savannah was eating more of. But the second one on the list stuck out to me. She told me that my job as a parent was to make sure that Savannah had more milkshakes. Um, she said it's a great way to give calcium to kids this age and, uh, and they'll drink it if she's you know, not liking her milk. Get her milkshakes. And uh, she, had, she made a little speech about how important it is for parents to make sure they're in charge of their, their kid's diet and what they're eating and, and milkshakes for Savannah. And this was outrageous to me. You know, I left and made an appointment for my, my physical right away. <laughs> No, we left the doctor's office since, you know, 9.15 in the morning here and like, hey, girl, doctor's orders, you know, Google, where can I get a milkshake right now? And the answer Google gave me was, was Burger King. So we went, you know, doctor's orders. I don't think those milkshakes even have calcium, by the way, <laughs> at Burger King. I don't know what's going on with that, but we, we went there. You understand this as a parent. One of your major jobs as a parent is regulating what your kids eat. Uh, if it were up to my kids, their diet would subsist entirely of chips and Skittles. You know, if it was, what do you guys want for dinner? Chips and Skittles. If there was no restraint, that's what they would, would want. Except for one of my girls loves fruit and vegetables. And that's, of course, is one that needs to drink more milkshakes. So there is a, an irony there for sure. The point is that grown-ups know what's good for kids to eat and kids don't. So we tell our kids, you must eat your vegetables before you have your dessert. You must eat this or that before the other thing. We're, we're, it's not that we're micromanaging their life. It's that we have an end in mind. We want them to grow up to be healthy and strong. And if left on their own, they would never choose the things that produce that. And you understand that. It's not just in the world of food, it's in the world of, of reading. Uh, we, we don't let our kids read whatever they want to read. Our oldest daughter has a particular genre of, of, of books that she loves reading right now, and then we, we cut her off. We say, you know, you can read a couple of these, and you've got to read a few of these before you go back to this one. It's the, it's the, it's the rule, because it's the same concept as the food. You know, we know what the product that we want to make here. We want some, a girl who is mentally strong and has a, a holistic worldview and can engage in the world around her. And if we just let her read whatever she wants to, that won't happen that way. And so we direct those kind of things. And I hope you understand that that's part of what it means to be a loving parent. Now we see the same concept here in James 2 through 4. There's a word that's repeated here in the verse. This passage is about a lot of things, but there's one word that's repeated twice that draws attention to it. And that's the word perfect down in verse 4. Let me read you these few verses. James 1 verse 2, consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And that word perfect there is the Greek word teleos, which means mature. It's the idea that you would be mature, that you would be all grown up, is what James says. That you are supposed to delight or rejoice when trials come your way 
because you know that it is God's way of helping you grow up to be big and strong, (laughs) taking you from a little itty bitty tiny baby cute Christian into a big, strong, mature pillar of the faith kind of Christian. That's what trials do in your life. In the same way a parent says, eat your vegetables because a child would never choose it but needs it, God directs our life through trials so that we grow into maturity. That's the mature result, verse 4 says, that you can be mature and complete lacking in nothing. This verse describes what God feeds you so that you grow. And notice this verse starts with a problem. In fact, if you had an eraser and you could change one word in the Bible, I bet the word you would remove is in verse two. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. I believe in inspiration of the Bible, the inerrancy. I believe that every word is inspired and you can't erase a word from the Bible. But if I had my eraser, The word when, I would get rid of the word when right there. Can we just swap that? I've got some other words. How about if? How about just on the chance that? (laughs) Consider all joy, my brothers, just on the strange chance that one day you might somehow stumble across some kind of trial around there. It could happen. Who knows? But instead it says, consider it all joy when these trials come. This is the nature of living in a fallen world that you're either going through a trial or you're preparing to go through a trial. And that's just life. You will have trials. There will be difficulties in life. That's true of everybody, Christians and non-Christians alike. But it's particularly true of Christians for several reasons. One, that God is doing something more particular in your life than he is in other people's lives. Secondly, because you also have the added element of trials that are persecution because of your faith. Both of those come together. Now, the word trial here, it's a a very rich word that you're going to see throughout the book of James, but it's basically any external thing that is applying pressure to your life. That's what the concept of a trial is, something outside of your control that is pressuring you. In the passage that David read earlier in Romans 5, Paul renders it there, tribulation is how it's translated, but that's that concept, that something is outside of you and it is poking you, it is pressuring you. And you can even go to the extreme and say it's directing you. The trial is what comes, you're not expecting it, and it hits you and it turns your life a different direction. That's a trial. And you will have those in life. It's an external difficulty outside of your control and then it happens to you. James Hebert in his commentary says, quote, trials are those undesirable events that assail us from without. Now, notice the concept of how you come across these trials in verse two, when you encounter is the, how it's rendered in the New American Standard. And the word actually in Greek means when you fall into. It's the concept of a pit there. You're minding your own business and whoop, you fell into the pit. And I guess encounter could be one way of rendering that. <laughs> It's a word that's used two other places in the New Testament, and I share this with you because I think it helps understand the the way God views your your encountering trials. One is in Luke uh, 10, the story of the Good Samaritan. And there, remember, Jesus says there was a man on the road to Jericho, on his journey to Jericho, that fell into robbers. That's that same word. He wasn't looking for robbers, of course. He was minding his own business on the road, and robbers found him. He fell into them, you could say. The other use is in Acts 27, a very powerful uh, description there of Paul's shipwreck. 
when it's, the ship is going along and it strikes a sandbar under the water. It, the, it's the same word. The, the ship literally fell into the sandbar. That's not how ships don't fall in the sand they hit it but the image is there's this child is lurking under the water it's just right there you don't see it it's right there you're just minding your own business trucking along in life and then bam robbers bam sandbar that's life that's life now the book of James is going to describe several of these trials, a, a, an external circumstance that exposes that you lack wisdom or that produces doubts in you. A poverty is a trial. Riches are even a trial, James is going to describe. Sickness later on in James, there's other examples as well. Those are various kinds of trials that you fall into. Now James begins his book by telling you how you're supposed to respond to them. And that's going to be our outline this morning, three right responses to trials, three right responses to trials. And let me rattle off your little outline for you before we, uh, let me give you all of them, then we'll go through them one at a time. The first response is joy from your head to your heart. The second is confidence from your faith to your endurance. And the third is patience from your immaturity to your maturity. Joy, confidence, patience. Joy, confidence, patience. Now let's look at the first one. Joy from your head to your heart. Consider it all joy, my brethren. And that really is the tricky bit, isn't it, right there? <laughs> don't, if you're going through a difficult trial in your life, don't think that James is being flippant here. He's not starting with the easy thing to build up. You know, that's how, that's how Americans would often communicate. You know, how's the weather and so and so? And they build to your main request. That's not the way James is starting here. He's starting with the most difficult thing he has to say. Consider it all joy. Consider is the word. It's an intellectual or a mental word. It's a head is the word I have in your outline there. But it's this concept that you've mulled something over in your mind. The closest English word to this might be a verdict when a judge renders a verdict. But this Greek word implies that there's been a long deliberative process. You've thought it over. Both sides have made their cases. You know, picture the good angel and the bad angel. <laughs> the good angel tells you, oh, you know, you need to rejoice in trials because God is doing something good and he's giving you all the reasons. And the, the bad angel says, no, you need to be bitter and you need to be angry. And don't, doesn't God know that you deserve better than this? And doesn't he know all you're going through? And other people don't go through this kind of stuff. And you have the, the case being made to you and you're weighing it out in your minds. And then you render your verdict. You declare, I decree that I will be joyful. That's this word. You're considering it joy. This is a word that Paul uses all over the book of Romans to describe the nature of justification. That God doesn't reckon or count or consider your sins against you. You've been reckoned righteous in Christ. It's an accounting term. That you've thought through it. You know, a judge in the United States might, might hear the case and declare not guilty. And at that moment forward, it doesn't matter if you were guilty or not guilty in actuality. In the eyes of the law, you are now not guilty. That's this concept here that you've mulled over the trial. You've thought about the difficulties of it. And you've thought about the temptations to complain and be bitter and be angry. And you've, you've thought about it. And you have rendered your verdict. You declare that you will be joyful. That's the command. I decree that in this moment, I will be rejoicing. I will have joy. I'm considering it joy. That's how you're supposed to respond to trials. This is probably the most significant 
obvious, visible way that the Christian life is different from the non-Christian life. I mean, there's a generic sense of Christian ethics in our culture that, so, you know, the Christians and non-Christians alike in an American culture would say it's wrong to steal and, you know, the kind of chivalry aspects that's kind of ingrained in our culture. But this one right here, this stands out that you would rejoice in a trial. You saw some of those television town halls after the shooting in Florida last week. Perhaps you saw the one where the the student said that she had confidence that God was going to do something good through this. And she was ridiculed by other students and by the, the moderator. I mean, that's just over the line. How dare you say that something good could come out of something this bad? How dare you say that something good could be the other side of something so horribly evil? How dare you is kind of the attitude that the world has about any trial or difficulty. And yet that's a basic component of the Christian worldview, isn't it? That God is working beauty from ashes. That God is doing something good that should cause you to rejoice. We'll look at what the good thing is later, but for now you just have to get your mind around the fact where James starts, that you have to declare that it is joy. That it is joy. My wife and I jotted down a list of trials we've gone through in the last few months. A funeral that that we attended for someone we, we knew, a friend who, uh, close friends who lost their baby. Uh, one of our closest friends moved to California. That, that made us sad. Our kitchen floors and our counters needed replacing. Uh, they were broken and, and we took them off and couldn't put them back down and it was just a fiasco. And that's where like a trial and blessing kind of mix. <laughs> Depending on what meal we're preparing for, it's a blessing or a trial. <laughs> And you've gone through that, you know what I'm talking about. We have another friend we found out is moving away. We had a, one of our daughters had to go to the emergency room. We had one of our family pets die. That's a typical month in the Johnson house. <laughs> that's a typical month in anybody's house, isn't it? I mean, that's life right there. You think of that list, and, and if you don't make that list, maybe you don't realize how cumulative it is. And I, may, I don't recommend that you make this kind of list because then it'll make you... Oh. And you're supposed to be, huh, rejoice. <laughs> you look at that list and it's almost, Deidre and I talked this morning, do I even, even read that list? And, you know, they're not that big of a deal. You went to somebody else's funeral. I mean, at that, that alone, you know, that family could be here this morning. What kind of trial is it for us compared to them, you know? It's not that big of a trial. Our pet died. That's different than a relative dying. We had a friend who lost their baby. That's different than us losing their baby. I mean, that's, but it's life. It's life. So how do you respond to those kind of trials? That's James's question. What's your response to them when they happen to you? And it has to start by you declaring that you will rejoice. Let me tell you some wrong ways that people respond to these. And I'm not talking wrong ways to people in the world. I'm talking about wrong ways I've seen Christians often respond to trials in life. First, and this is probably where I'm most prone to a, a, a bad response, is to treat it like it's no big deal. Yeah, this is not a big deal. This is just this is life. Let's just press on. Nothing to see here. Come on, babe. Something to see here. Let's just keep trucking. <laughs> and it's not a healthy response because if you have that kind of response where you pretend that there is no trial here, the danger is that you don't see what God is doing in your life. You miss the lesson that God is teaching. You miss what God is doing when you act like it's, it's nothing. 
The second wrong response would be the woe is me response, the Eeyore, Christian Eeyore response. Oh, it's so sad. Everything is, you don't know how bad it is. And the person it consumes their life. Every conversation with their friends becomes how bad their life is, how many trials they're going through. You know, probably under the guise, I just so you can pray for me. I just want you to know how awful it is right now. And the danger with that is that you're sinning by complaining. Your world is revolving around you, and now you're making other people's worlds revolve around you too. <laughs> and sinning by complaining. And the third wrong response is just the, the over-the-top grief where you're, you're not consolable, where there's no end in sight. And the danger to that response is that you forget that what you're going through has an end to it, that God is actually directing your steps in a particular direction. There's nothing wrong with grief, of course. Don't mishear me. Of course you should, should grieve when, when loved ones die or when trials come. Of course there should be a, a grieving process. But remember the Bible's command, do not grieve as those who have no hope. Because when you grieve like them, you are forgetting that there is indeed a hope. There is indeed something at the other side that you're being led to. That's the point that you have to remember. And it is a mental thing. You're supposed to analyze this in your head and then command your heart. And that's the nature of Christian affections, isn't it? They start in the head, but they go to the heart. You can only love that what you, what you know, and so the more informed your head is, the more powerful the emotions of the heart are. It's not purely a mental thing. It's not to like just grit your teeth and say Rejo rejoice. No, there's an actual transformation in the heart where you do rejoice, and the reason you rejoice is because you know that God is doing something, and that leads to the second point. You have confidence from your faith to your endurance. You have joy from your head to your heart, and you have confidence from your faith to your endurance. You have confidence that God is proving your faith. Verse three, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now, the testing implies that there's somebody giving the test. This is where you see the sovereignty of God over this. And James is going to make that clear by the end of chapter one. We'll get to that in a few weeks. Just for now, trust me, by the end of this chapter, you're going to know that it is God is the one who's giving the test. And so you remember that, that you recognize you're going through a trial. That is me being tested. You can't self-test. You don't test yourself. Not even homeschoolers are allowed to test themselves. <laughs> the test is being administered by the person, in this case, who's grading it. And, and here, God is administering the test. The trials are around you for a lot of reasons, not just for your reason. It's not as if a trial happens to you that the whole reason for that trial is for your faith to be tested. No, God is doing 10,000 things in everybody's life. But one of the things, the first reason James goes, is you know that you are having your faith tested, and that should cause you to rejoice. And here's where you have to ask yourself a basic question about testing. Do you rejoice in a test? Well, sometimes yes and sometimes no. If you're ready for it, you rejoice in it. If you're ready for it, you re rejoice in it. If you're, I remember in my, my soccer days, I used to look forward to the spring training test if I was ready to pass it because I could demonstrate how, how prepared I was. And if I was not ready for the test, then I was not looking forward to it. <laughs> Going to the, the Dead Sea 
in Israel, I remember our church guy telling everybody, take off your wedding rings before you go float in the water there. And somebody said, why? And they said, oh, because the, the water, if it's not a, a real metal on your hand, the water will expose that. And you don't want to find out that your ring has been a fake on your Israel trip, okay? <laughs> so just everybody take off their rings. <laughs> and so, you know, the archer guy was very polite. You know, I'm sure your rings are legitimate, but there might be other people in your group. So if everybody just takes theirs off. And, but there's a certain amount like, no, now I want to wear I Now I want to prove to my wife that this is legit. <laughs> I want to pass the test. I want to show off that I'm ready for it. I want to pass the test. Notice the command here to consider it all joy. It's not consider your trial joy. I mean, that's insane, right? But it's consider it joy because you know that you're being tested. It's this testing process. It's not the trial. It's that the fact your faith is genuine and you want that revealed. You want to know. You don't wake up in the morning and say, Lord, give me a trial today. Lord, I would just like to be afflicted today. You don't say that. But it is possible you wake up and say, Lord, make my faith stronger today. Lord, show me areas I need to grow in. That's a very common prayer. This is how God answers those prayers. Now, why would God do this to you? You might ask, you're going through a trial. God, why would you do this to me? You just got to change that preposition. God's not doing it to you. He's doing it, you know, your next step would say with you. And for the mature Christian, you get to the point where you say for me. But you start by asking, God, not why are you doing this to me? God, why, what are you doing with me right now? How are you molding me right now? What are you teaching me right now? How are you revealing my faith to me right now? And there's a fork in the road here where you have to ask yourself this basic question. Is God in control of your trial or not? I mean, this is the question you have to answer at the very beginning. This is the starting gate right here. You're going to go this way or that way. And if you say God is not in control of this trial, then you're in trouble because you go down the God is not in control road and there is no comfort there. There is no joy down that road. There is no encouragement down that road. There's no strength down that road. There's nothing. Now, I mean, that road is the, that road, is the road of medication and self-help and drugs and depression and distractions in life. That's what that road has. And so you got to back up and go back to the fork and say, is God in control of this trial or not? And you have to answer yes. That's the Christian answer to this, is that God is in control. God is doing something. He is in charge. Now, down that road, there is confidence in your salvation. There is comfort from the Holy Spirit. There is strength in standing on Christ because your faith is being tested. It's producing, it says, endurance is the last word in verse 3. Endurance is a, it's an Olympian word from the Roman Empire. It's the, it's the weightlifting word. They would lift weights and for the, uh, for the, it to be a clean lift for it to count. They had to hold the weight above their head for a certain amount of time. I don't know what the time was, but it was some amount of time they had to hold the weight above their head. And so there would be the, the weightlifter there and sweat's pouring out of him and he's, he's grunting and yelling and he hits the time and throws it down. And that's how you build up strength is you can hold it longer and longer and longer. That's this word. It's the support underneath or the pressure from above that you can endure under the trial. So your faith is being tested through the trial to produce this kind of endurance that you can stand up underneath it. You can remain underneath is the literal translation. Why would you want to remain underneath weights? I ask myself that whenever the alarm goes off and it's time to go to the gym. Why would anybody want to do this? Most days I actually don't have a good answer, so hey, hug the pillow longer. Why would somebody do this? 
Well, God puts you through trials for lots of reasons. One, so that you magnify his glory by trusting in Christ more than your circumstances. You know, I hope you appreciate that, that the world sees the preciousness of the gospel by how you hold on to your faith in Christ even through trials. Not just trusting Christ generically, but trusting Christ specifically, knowing that he is at work in your trial. This is precisely what the world mocks because they don't see God in control. And if God is in control, he wouldn't have let it happen. I mean, that's, the, that's just the worldview 101 of our culture, isn't it? God must not be in control of the trial because if he was, it wouldn't have happened. There's no, it's as if there's no framework for the idea. No, God directs it for good on the other side. Another reason God could be having you go through a trial is so that you show your confidence in God more than your comforts in life or in the status quo. This is exactly what the devil thought about Job. Remember when God asked the devil, have you considered Job? Remember what the devil told God? Of course Job loves you because he's got his health. Who wouldn't? Take his health and then he won't worship you. I mean, that was the devil's thinking. And so remember God told the devil, go for it. And so the devil takes Job's health from him. And then Job still praises God. So he shows that the devil was wrong. Now, Job didn't know that the devil was involved in this. He had no concept of that. He hadn't read the book of Job yet. <laughs> but we have. And so I hope you understand more about God's purpose in trials than the devil does. I hope you understand more about God's purpose in trials than Job does because you've learned his lesson that you understand you're going through the trial to demonstrate to the world and even to the devil that you love Christ more than you love life. And only trials can reveal that. Going through trials, God leads you through trials so that you have an example to follow the pattern of Jesus who ran his race with a course marked out with suffering who though he was struck did not strike back, though he was cursed did not curse back, though he was stricken he didn't waver, though he was reviled, he trusted his soul to the one who was able to save his soul from death and our souls are as well. That's his example. That's the course that's laid out for us. And so we run that course with joy. Now those are all true reasons of why God leads you through trials, but they're not the one James gives. James gives a different one here in verse four so that you grow up. And that's going to be our third point. Patience from your immaturity to your maturity. So God leads you through trials and your response should be joy from your head to your heart, from your considering to your emotions. Confidence from your faith to your endurance. Your faith is proved and it, it demonstrates endurance that you can withstand under trials. And thirdly, patience. Because you're going from immature to mature. And that's the word that's two times here in verse three, knowing the, te the uh, in verse four, let endurance, that's the word for holding underneath, have its mature result, perfect result, mature, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, so that you can grow up, that you can be big and strong. Here's where the goal is in mind. Remember, suffering does not just happen to people but it's under the loving direction of God. It's not as if bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. It's that God directs the affairs of this world for his glory and our good, and I hope those two things aren't in conflict. 
Now what glorifies him is for our good. And so we go into trials knowing that we're going into them under the loving direction of our heavenly father. It's not as if trials happen with malice from God. As if he's indifferent to suffering or as if he doesn't care about what you're going through. Trials happen under the hand of a loving father with direction and precision and purpose. And you have to believe that. Because again, if you don't, these other things don't make sense. You can't rejoice in trials if we're all just matter and motion. You can't have confidence in trials if they're just things that happen to people. But you can have patience through your trial knowing that there is an end in mind. And that end, by the way, is that you grow into the image of Christ. He's the example of the mature man. He's the, he's the teleos man. He's the, the love of the Father is made mature, complete, revealed in the Son, and we're growing into his image. So every trial we go through, it's growing us more and more into the image of Christ. What he's doing is growing you up all nice, big, and godly. <laughs> that she would be mature. And it says, this last phrase here, lacking in nothing. I mean, notice it's almost an ironic way to end this thought. That trials are often things that take away from you, right? They take away loved ones. They take away your health. It takes away your job. It takes away your, your money or your family. Trials are stripping things away from you, oftentimes. But notice that the result of all that is that you realize that you lack nothing. It's supposed to be ironic that you realize the more you lose, that you can't lose what is eternal. And so other things get stripped away, not because those things don't matter. Obviously, they matter. But so that your heart remains on what's eternal. Through trials, recognize that it's not God punishing you. It's not God disciplining you, although sometimes they can be. Sometimes the trials come to people's life as a form of discipline from, from God, but that's generally not the case. Generally, it's God maturing you. Again, go back to the child with the vegetables. Why do I have to eat my spinach? What did I do wrong? What did you do wrong? You didn't do anything wrong. You're being loved. Now, I don't mean to trivialize it. I mean, it's kind of amusing when you're talking about it with kids, right? Ha ha, spinach. But this is an argument from the lesser to the greater. When that principle is true at the lesser level, that's where you have to learn it so that you hold on to it at the greater level. So that when there is difficulty in your life, when there are loved ones who are dying, when the doctor does say you have cancer and it's not going away, when those things happen, when you get the phone call that wakes you up in the middle of the night and somebody you know died, where you have all that happening to you, you've already learned the lesson from the spinach. You've learned the littler lessons that you hold on to it here. You know that God is in control and he's doing something. And I'm telling you, the best way you can respond in these trials is by asking the Lord the question, what are you trying to teach me? It's not that you're in the wrong. It's that your, your starting point is, God, you're doing something here. I want to learn it. I don't know why you're doing this. I wouldn't have planned this out. I wouldn't have done this. This affects so many other people also. It doesn't seem right that they're affected by this. You have all those questions, but your starting point is, God, show me what you're teaching me through this. That's what I want to learn. This is the school of trials, the school of affliction. And this command, you have to let it have its mature results so that you can be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing.
One of my favorite hymns is Day by Day by Carolina Sandel. She was a Swedish poet. She was a pastor's daughter. This is 1800s, mid-1800s. She was growing up. Uh, her dad was a Lutheran pastor. She lived in the parsonage in the rectory with her family all the way until she got married in her 30s. But when she was 26, still living at home, and her dad went on a journey on the boat across the lake behind their, their house, a Swedish lake, a big lake. <laughs> There's waves and stuff in the lake. And many of you know the story, I'm sure. The boat jostles and waves shifts the boat as her father was shifting directions and her father fell overboard on the boat. And they're out in the middle of the lake and uh, Lena tries to rescue her father. She goes in after him. He was wearing too many clothes. He was too heavy. She wasn't strong enough to pull him out. And he drowned in front of her while she was trying to save him. She goes home and she spends the next few years writing this poem that becomes the hymn Day by Day. Let me put a couple stanzas on the screen for you. Day by day, and this is how it begins, with each passing moment, strength I find to meet my sorrows here. And I just love that understanding that in a trial, it's every single moment where God is giving you strength. Trusting in my Father's wise bestowment I have no cause for worry or for fear. In other words, it's not just something that happens to you, but God is wisely leading you, and you have to trust that. He whose heart is kind beyond all measure gives each day what he deems best. Lovingly, it's part of pain and pleasure, mingling toil with perfect peace and rest. It's this idea that God's lovingly doing this. It doesn't seem lovingly because it's painful, but it is lovingly. Help me, Lord, she writes, when toil and trouble meeting, ere to take as from a father's hand, one by one the days, the moments fleeting, till I reach the promised land. And that becomes our prayer. We ask the Lord to help us in every trial, in every tribulation, knowing that the moments go by so fast, they're fleeting but that God is holding our hands, leading us straight into the image of Christ. Lord, we're thankful that you are at work in our lives. We're not just matter in motion, but we're creatures made by you to display your glory to the world. We pray that you would be at work in us and that we would be responsive, that we would let these trials have their perfect results, making us mature, lacking nothing, Lord, oftentimes we know we're supposed to rejoice. We pray that you would give us the heart that's capable of doing so. Fan the flame of affections in our life. Help us trust you. Rejoice that our sins are forgiven and that we have a Savior who is sovereign who rules the world. We don't understand all of your ways, Lord. We don't understand why some trials happen to some and not others. We don't understand why the evil prospers. Scripture has much to say about that this morning. Help us understand why we are to rejoice. Lord, we know that there is true rejoicing when we come to the cross. And so we do gather there this morning. In the name of your Son, amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. 
If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.